Martin Peters is the world's highest contributor to Python on Stack Overflow. It's hard to be a programmer and not come across him online regularly. Martin has worked on developer infrastructure at Facebook. He's worked on Zope with Guido Van Rossum, the creator of Python. He's worked on the framework team of Plone, which is used by the CIA and FBI, and much more as well. He's made contributions to Python, Flask and Mercurial, and currently works as an open source consultant. So I hope you enjoy a chat with Martin Peters. Martin, welcome to the show. I've personally benefited a huge amount from your online endeavours, mainly Stack Overflow, so I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, so let's jump straight in. Okay. Could you tell me the story of your career from the start until where it is now? Goodness me. Um, I, I think my career started because as a child, uh, my father was a, a computer technician. Um, in the days that computer technician meant that you would take out a board out of a big, big cupboard and find <laughs> with an oscilloscope, find the one little transistor or <laughs> resistor that was that was broken and use a soldering iron to repair it. And we we come along to the office and these big machines and big line printers rattling away. And uh, we would play um, battleships or something like that on, on two different terminals. Mm. And eventually I, I was given a computer for my birthday. I think it was 10 or 11 or something like that. And that's you, to make it work, to do anything interesting with it, you had to program it. Uh, so that's that's where I started with it. When I then later on, a teenage, as a student, needed some money because I wanted to go on a trip, I wanted to go to, on a holiday to uh, Central America, I took on a part-time job as a, a web designer on the back of having done one HTML page, which said on the construction, and having <laughs> flicked through a book on Photoshop. But in those days, that was all you needed to, to be able to, yeah. to say to other people, I am a web designer, I can do this. That part-time job later on was replaced by a full-time job. I, I, I literally, I, I was doing a communications class where I had to write an application, a job application for an actual existing advert. And I didn't just hand it into the teacher. I also sent it in and was hired. <laughs> um, then I did lots of different things, lots of different programming languages to solve the problems at hand. But was working at the consultancy where we really were thinking about how can we give customers something a bit more easy to pick from? Because everything was still wide open. There wasn't really any standard websites, but it was also not very dynamic yet. So there would be a menu and some options and some listings and maybe a contact form. Mm. That was the extent of dynamism. We saw that there might be patterns here that, that customers would need the same kinds of things. So we wanted to be doing component, componentized websites. And mm. I was just reading about this thing called Zoop. It was a... Uh, almost took in this paper magazine called Webmaster Magazine. And someone named Amos Latier had written an article about this platform called Zoop. It was in Python. I had looked at Python before. It was a little bit with a sideways glance of what's this thing with white space and had ignored it mostly. <laughs> but but Zoop somehow triggered an interest that really took off for me. It was, an, it was a very early open source project. It was one of the first open source businesses. Mm -hmm. And because I was solving problems that I needed to solve for projects with that, uh, I started helping out on the mailing list and the company uh, noticed that and said, why don't you come over and work for us in the US? Awesome. Um, but I didn't have a degree yet <laughs> to actually get the <laughs> uh, the H-1B visa requirements. But I, I was uh, studying from home to get something, enough of a degree that I could go and uh, that, that 
convinced the uh, the U.S. authorities that I was worthy of a visa, <laughs> and then that that happened and it worked out. And in in two thousand and one, we moved to the U.S. for a couple of years to work there. Unfortunately, Zoe Corporation didn't outlast the dot com bubble. It it uh, went on. Mm. It, it started to go south end of two thousand and three, I'd say. And me being a loudmouth Dutchman and with a visa, it was uh, <laughs> it, I was one. I was an easy one to let go, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I was a sinking ship, and I didn't row hard enough. But in the end, everybody went. Uh, the uh, that was a bit of a crisis point. But there were people in the Netherlands that were medical consultancy that had customers working with Plone. And Plone is a content management system built on top of SOAP. And I built a lot of the components that SOAP, that Plone was using. And they needed someone uh, to help grow their the, the Plone content management consultancy side and invited me to come back to the Netherlands. And that's uh, where I went following that. Mm. Uh, and as part of the Plone community, back in the Netherlands, there, there was a, a discovery that we missed the open space of Virginia, and the Netherlands is very densely populated. It's uh, one of the most densely populated countries in Europe. And when I was at a sprint, at a, a collaborative uh, week of working on Plon code in Norway, I looked around and, and I was talking to my wife. I said, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. We should move here. This is, this is what we're missing. Uh, and I talked to the local, the company that had organized the sprint, which is one of the founding companies of the, of the Plone uh, platform. And was basically said that well, if you wanted to move to Norway, why don't you come and work with us? All said and done, we moved to Norway. And we worked with, uh, worked nearly, nearly seven years we were in, in, in Norway there. That was a very interesting time. We had a wide range of customers as a consultancy there, uh, including a very in- large international uh, retail chain to different companies and there was lots of for me lots of technical challenges to to uh, to uh, to learn and expand on but the, the 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 one big customer stayed the one big customer and we, as we tried to grow the business to meet more such customers there's more customers we didn't get those contracts and in the end mm-hmm. even though we tried to productize uh, uh, the platform some some of the ideas there it, it didn't make it i think that that was for me was a very a good point for it to switch over to become my own uh, independent consultant and be my own boss. I had until mm-hmm. that point done a lot of things on the side, uh, small jobs for uh, a client here, a friend there. Uh, yes. Th- and with the large customer still needing support, uh, together with another ex-employee of the company, we kept that going. Uh, but we were also, as a family, looking to go perhaps go back to Britain. I'm, I married a Scott, and she was wanting to go back to, to Britain uh, for a while now. And mm. uh, so when the company contacted me uh, to help them build up their Django platform for uh, managing virtual uh, machines in a, in a larger corporate setting, uh, that was the point for us to say, well, we're going to go to Britain with this. So that move again was uh, dictated by where do you want to live uh, kind of questions. Mm. Uh, so that's how we ended up in Britain and we're still there. Uh, from there, I... After a while, went back to doing my own my own consulting again, a lot of plan support and other Python support. And then, as I was doing a contract, Facebook uh, contacted me, which I was very skeptical about. Mm. 
I literally, I, the, the recruiter laughed when I said, well, what is a PHP shop doing calling a Python developer? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that Facebook was doing a lot of Python work and, and very instrumental in a lot of Python work. Mm. Uh, and they convinced me that it was going to be a very interesting place to be at. And it, and it was. Uh, Zob Corporation, I realized, was a place of really smart people doing really smart things. I'd learned a lot there mm. and realized I was missing that. Mm. And Facebook certainly had that in tons and tons of it. It was an amazingly interesting place to work. Very intense though. Uh, so after a couple of years commuting down from Cambridgeshire to London, it was quite a distance. I yeah. decided that it, with changing family, uh, uh, kids growing up and going to university soon, I really wanted to be at home again. Mm. So I made a decision to go back to consulting, being my okay. own boss again. And that's what I'm doing now. Fantastic. So what did you work on at Facebook? Facebook, uh, we worked on the uh, dev infrastructure, so development infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you go into Facebook, you, there's no, there's no, you're not hired for anything specific, right? You, you, you're hired as a, uh, a backend or full stack engineer. And mm. uh, I had a specialism in Python. I would like to work on that. And in London, there weren't that many sp- Python options. So I was looking at other things, but then in a, uh, one of the bootcamp classes on the source control systems, I learned that Facebook uses Mercurial, and I had in the past contributed to Mercurial and Mercurial components and uh, extensions. And I yeah. mentioned this to the engineer that was teaching the class. He said, oh, that's interesting. And an hour after the class, I was sitting on the couch working on something, and that engineer sat down next to me. And on the other side, another engineer sat down next to me and said, so we hear you do you did Mercurial and do Python. We need to build a Mercurial team here in London. Would you like to join? Mm. And that's mm-hmm. how I, I became part of the of the the first member of the Mercurial the the the, the source controls team in London for Facebook to help build the uh, the platform there. So Facebook's engineering challenges are are usually uh, of the uh, turn everything up to eleven kind. <laughs> uh, when I when I talk to non tech people and say what what was Facebook like. Uh, the analogy I uh, I pull out is is then about building wind turbines. So if you build a wind turbine, uh, you know, lots of companies can do that. There's specialism, specialization in how you make the, 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 the motor work correctly and transformation mm-hmm. into power. And there's a concrete base and a pillar and, and blades and everything. But the, the, these wind turbines are designed for condition, for normal conditions, for wind mm-hmm. up to maybe wind force nine, eight, nine. Yeah. And then they'll block the blades or they put it in free spin if the wind is going to go higher because it's not designed to handle such loads. Imagine, however, that Facebook builds wind turbines for Wind Force 11 full stop <laughs> all the time. That, that's what yeah. it's like. So you, mm. if you build a website outside of Facebook for, for most things, you build it up at some point. If you're lucky, you get a million visitors a day for a big site. At Facebook, mm. you're going to have to deal with that as the bottom end. Yeah. The, the same, and the same thing goes for source control. So it's it has one mono. It didn't have it at the time. But we're moving towards a mono repo. So everything mm-hmm. in one repository. Yeah. All the engineers always committing to tip and the number of changes coming in every day all the time. That was just enormous. So it was very challenging, very interesting. Lots mm. learned such a lot there. It was very very uh, interesting time. I also then did a lot of Python next to that, helping out with the, the Python core team and uh, teaching uh, different things in different classes, so source control and Python uh, basics, or, or not basics, but the uh, the Facebook uh, introduction to how Python is done there. Uh, mm. 
and helping out around with the open source mentorship program for Facebook. I was a mentor there and uh, helped out a little bit the forming of that program. A lot of different opportunities, lots of different challenges you can apply yourself to at a company like Facebook. But as mm-hmm. I said, it was also very intense. It's very uh, there was a three hour, three and a half hour round trip every day. Uh, yeah. So that that was that was also exhausting in that way. Yeah, I'm sure. So at what point did you start contributing to Stack Overflow? Um, we started out when I was working as a Plum consultant. I was also a member of the core developer, the core team of uh, for for the uh, for the platform, mm-hmm. where I was part of the framework team, where we sort of vetted ideas and proposals and uh, for new directions and doing a lot of thinking about supporting the community in that way. And someone mentioned this new platform called Stack Overflow that might be interesting to look at and see if, how well that could be used to to help people fix problems with Plum. So I've started sort of tentatively answering there. So I was looking at questions there. and uh, But at some point, I discovered this the wider picture there and started answering Python questions as well. I think I joined quite early in 2009, but it was it was a little while before it took off that I started answering a wider number of questions. Then that was a Pandora's box. I, I pulled something open that was just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I couldn't. I, I, there was so many different things because the thing is is that this is something that Eric Lippert once said um, in an interview. Eric Lippert is uh, one of the engineer, one of the core engineers of the C Sharp compiler at Microsoft. Mm. Uh, I later met him. He, he went to Facebook, uh, and, and I had the privilege of sitting next to him when I was visiting in Seattle. But he uh, said that when his manager asked him to become an expert on a specific subject, he, he, he was saying, how do I do that? How can I become an expert on this? And as I said, well, just find a pile of questions. Find, find a place where people are asking questions about him and then just start trying to answer each one of those. You'll become an expert quickly enough. And that's basically what, what, face, what Stack Overflow was for me, is that as I found questions that I found, like, oh, that's easy, I'll just... Oh, wait a second. It's not that easy. <laughs> There's something yeah. about this and it, it would hook me and I would try and figure it out and then go into the Python source code or whatever and, and figure out what the exact problem, how it needed to be solved, answer that. And I would have learned something. And that, that those lessons kept adding up and adding up and adding up. So that's what motivated you, yeah. the curiosity. Yeah, the curiosity... And and the, the, it's like you you find a little thread and you start pulling at it and the whole thing starts unraveling and instead for me that became that that knitted together uh, expertise I, I guess. Awesome. Um, so kind of jumping around a bit, what is a really interesting feature of Python that not many people know about? Oh goodness me, uh, <laughs> I I find this hard to answer because I'm often too close up to it. Mm. Um, I'm surprised at certain things that people don't know. I, I think my highest voted answer is on the range object, so the range type. Mm. So maybe that's one that people don't know about. Um, so the range type in Python is a is a sequence object. Many people think it's a generator. So it's with range, you give it the start and stop value and maybe a step value, and it will generate what well, it looks like generate uh, integers in that range. Yeah. Uh, it's often used in loops. So people think it, because you use it in a for loop, it will only generate those numbers and then it's done. But it's not It's not a generator. It's, it's not, uh, it doesn't produce those numbers once. It's a, it's a sequence object just like a list or a string or a tuple is a sequence. 
you can ask it for numbers at a specific index. You can say, what's the fifth number? What's the tenth number? What's the last number? And this question was, why is it so fast to say, to ask if a number is in the range? If I make a huge range with 10 million items in it, from, from zero to 10 million, why is it so far, can it be so fast to say that item 10 million and one is not in that range? Uh, for me, the answer is, for me, the answer is obvious. Because it's a virtual sequence, it just has to calculate it. It knows mm. the start and stop value, and it knows the step value. So you, it, it can know through maths if a number is in there or not, and, and what each number at each index is. Mm. Well, if you assume that it is a generator, so it has to produce those numbers one by one, but next, and it doesn't mm. think about number five when it's still just generating number two for you, it can't know if a number is in the range until it has generated all the numbers all the way to the end. And if you then have 10 million numbers, it would take a long time. So yeah. that, that's surprising to me that people don't quite see that. But, but I guess that's maybe because there's a large, a very large proportion of, of the software engineering and, and programming community doesn't actually have much of a software engineering and, and computer science background. Mm. Thinking in terms of algorithms and computer theory Algorithm theory is, is not something that's uh, widely uh, practiced. Mm. Do you think it should be more? I think that it's more important than people think, that realize it. it there is a lot of uh, people that sort of roll into it because there's an interesting career and you can mm-hmm. make money. Uh, it's better than being, they feel, than, than following your dad's business as a carpenter or something like that. And they might they have, maybe have a tenant for it, but they don't then go beyond building a quick website or uh, so simple for loops in the in the, the, the tutorial of the programming language yeah because computing is not so important in the, in the world can lead to huge inefficiencies and and uh, problems as as uh, so many different programming to, uh, uh, problems are solved the wrong way mm. so if you're a if you're a self-taught programmer and you don't plan to go to college or uni, or maybe you don't have the opportunity to. What do you think is the a good way to to acquire that kind of knowledge? Um, I'm self-taught myself. Uh, I never, mm-hmm. I never did finish that degree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I definitely discovered that I was lacking in this area, but and I started interviewing with some of the larger companies, and I think Google interviews were very much a catalyst for me for that. So I, yeah. I picked up. Uh, online courses, uh, free courses. Uh, I think it's MIT or was it uh, Stanford? It published a really very good course of uh, uh, computer algorithms. So mm. int- intro to, com- to algorithms uh, course with videos and I got the, the, the textbook for that and worked my way through that. That was that was very, very good groundwork for me. Okay, that's interesting. That I, I learned a lot from that and I still use that knowledge every day. Awesome. Okay, so another random question. What do you think separates a good software engineer from a great software engineer? Um, working with other people, teamwork, and being open to a diverse range of ideas. I think there are many great lone cowboys that can do great work. Mm. And I'm not always the one, I'm not always the best at cooperating and coordinating, but I, every time I do and manage to get it done properly, I always am amazed how much having extra perspectives helps. Because you can easily steer yourself into a corner and think this is the best solution to this, and then discover later on that someone else points out something simple or another direction, and you feel, oh wait a second, maybe I've overthought this. I wish I'd seen this earlier. And nobody can see all the different paths and the different 
solutions to problems, however much experience you have. And having another perspective always helps in that way. And, and you learn such a lot when you, when you see other perspectives. It doesn't always mean that they will have the right perspective, but if you're open to it and, and think about it and can articulate why that perspective might be wrong or that the approach might be worse or better, just that introspection, just that thinking more about the wider picture and, how, and comparisons make, it, make you a better software engineer. Mm. So I think the, best, the, the great software engineer is the one that, that recognizes that and keeps themselves open to that and seeks out collaboration. So I, I think open source, for example, is absolutely brilliant. Do open source. That will, that will help you mm. improve your software engineering skills. Yeah. So what has impacted your workflow the most in the last few years? Um, it could be a tool, a technical trick, or a, a mental thing. It could be anything. Hmm. That's a hard one again, because it's I can get quite set in my ways uh, <laughs> I, I, I this is something I haven't spoken about much publicly um, I've spoken with a lot in, in private with people about this but I, I discovered a couple of years back that I uh, I have ADD mm-hmm. so um, this is mislabeled uh, uh, I think it, it, it the the, uh, the acronym stands for attention deficit disorder mm. it's not that I have a deficit of attention I have less control over where my attention goes to than most than most people as mm. or neurotypical people mm. uh, so for me it's very important that I, I uh, make sure that I know that, that, I, that I'm focusing on the right things I can easily get distracted and that's that's great for when someone wants an answer on stack overflow but uh, if that's at the expense of a, of, a, of a project deadline that's not that great mm. um, so I, I do use a lot of timers, lots of timers, to uh, just make sure that uh, that I get poked once in a while to see where my attention is at that moment, and so I can redirect it. Mm. So what most people have in their heads, the little policeman that will say, "Well, are you doing the right thing?" That's that's I've I've delegated that to timers. Okay, that that really helped me. But that's mm. a, that's more it's more of an ADD tip than that that applies to my kind of thinking and looking at the world that might not apply to other people. Sure. Okay. Um, so another random one, if you could give a message to every beginner developer, what would that message be? Uh, stay curious. There's always more out there to learn. And by doing so, you become a better developer. Awesome. Lastly, um, do you have a favorite failure, uh, perhaps one that led to a later success? Ooh, there's always interesting failures <laughs> failures are, are <laughs> always leads to, to can, can so often lead to to uh, interesting challenges again but mm. the greatest failure my goodness I, I built at Facebook I built a very interesting uh, integration between the build tool uh, buck and the open source uh, the, the the source control platform because we had this one repo we mm. A checkout of the monorepo is going to be huge. Right? We're talking about millions of files here, and while it's well organized into a tree, and and your and command line tools like ls won't won't break. As soon as you point a, an IDE at this that tries to enumerate where all the files are, you have a bit of a problem mm. because it's it's going to try and crawl everything, and that was not going to be the greatest thing to do. <laughs> 
Yeah. So we had different solutions for that. One of them was uh, um, curated uh, sparse uh, profiles. And sparse profile in Mercurial is a is the, a, a set of uh, uh, rules of saying these files are included, these files are not included. So if you were working on the front end, you've had one. If you're working on uh, the one of the uh, mobile clients, you had another one, and that would already limit the tree quite a lot. But that's, these these were still very huge sets. And so we would want to encourage people to use sparse uh, profiles and, and within the team, maybe build these things and make that as easy as possible. But we also had the idea that the build tool knows what, where to find things. If you had a build tool, would, you would give it rules as to where to find files and, and define sets. And it would go out there and, and uh, find other dependencies and mm. find the right inclusions and find the right files. And therefore it would know this part of the source of, of the source tree is needed to build this tool. Mm. So if you could get that knowledge into Mercurial for the sparse tool to then limit the file system automatically, that would be great. Uh, for me, that was a huge push into Java. I, I don't particularly like Java, certainly not when I looked at it first in Java 1. Uh, but fine, I'll work this in Java and it worked a lot on this and learned a lot. And I worked with the, the Instagram team to, to have that built and they were very happy. It, it really worked very well except it was not fast enough. Uh, if you did this with uh, just a manual tool, a manual created tool, it would be fast. But every time you would run the build tool, it would actually then drive the sparse profile as well. Uh, but the the number of small changes that would then have to be propagated and the whole scan would go through it again, we couldn't get that fast enough. We couldn't get that to, to improve quickly enough. Uh, so in the end, like six months of work was scrapped we had to take it out again. Mm. Uh, so that that's, that's, uh, can be painful to see mm. a, a, a big chunk of your life and work that you're proud of to, to go like that. But at the same time, mm. I realized how much I'd learned again uh, because I had enormous fun with doing uh, things like uh, bisection over uh, memory mapped files of huge numbers of, 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 uh, of data mm. that I hadn't done before. And we learned a lot about uh, inefficiencies in the sparse profile, uh, sparse uh, uh, extension that we could, could work on and improve because it, those were still needed. So, and uh, again, a, a collaboration with other engineers, I learned lots of that. And that's, that's still very valuable for me to have seen that and to have worked with, uh, with some parts of the, of the organization I hadn't had a chance to work with before. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Martijn. This has been really interesting. Cool. So that wraps up this interview. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on Spotify, iTunes, or the platform of your choice. And I will see you next time.